Blog Talk Radio. Absolutely. It is your time. I am Apostle S.B. Barber. Thank you for joining us from around the country. And uh, Ghana, I have to salute you. I really do thank you all for chiming in when you can, uh, etc. So for those of you that would like to speak directly with us, you have a comment, I would like for you to just simply know to dial because you're listening via internet, dial 646-595-3620. And uh, at least you know you have that liberty and press one. We're going to jumpstart you this morning because we have selected a powerhouse, uh, a black female who can talk to us from probably every side angle nook cranny of government from her perspective and that is state minnesota state representative rena moran now our commentators i'm going to open their lines so that they can greet you all and uh, but i'd like for everyone to understand that over this season we've been talking about women politics and money, government resource, response, designated dollars, created opportunity and their impact. And we've done uh, the series on good girls, nice girls finish last. Well, our guest today, I believe that she, some kind of way she is shaped in here and can uh, address a test to any of these pieces, and we want to have her do that. So we're going to have a lot of, uh, we're going to not take up a lot of her time, but we want to get to her. And so let me do this. Let me go ahead and open this mic for our commentators. And let's begin with Dr. Lewis Foreman, Jr. Good morning, Twin Cities and listening audience all around the country and even the world. We are so glad to have you with us this morning and uh, tuned in to the broadcast of Monday Money Matters. And, of course, we are your black money team, helping you to keep your money in the black. And, again, awesome guest today. Greetings again to Senator uh, Representative, State Representative Rena Moran of Minnesota. And uh, we're going to be able to have a awesome show today to talk about the various different areas, impact financially, uh, impact financial and gender, impact designated dollars, (laughs) 
from the government and their impact not in our communities. And so today we have an awesome show for you. Glad to be here. Let's get it moving forward. And Lydia Iniosa, go ahead. Happy Monday. Everything Dr. Lois said and also, um, I'm sorry, I had to put that in there. Welcome to the show. Have your pen and a piece of paper ready or something to take notes with because you're going to learn something on this show that you're not going to hear any other place. I know I have my pen and paper ready. Anyway. All right, let's go ahead and greet our guest, and uh, she'll greet everyone. (laughs) And you know what the thing about it is, the powerful thing about this today is we know that she is of substance and will be able to talk intimately. I've never used that term, but intimately with us all as it relates to the areas that we have talked about and presented to our listening audience. And so Rena Moran, Representative Rena Moran, go ahead and greet everyone. And again, thank you for joining us. Representative, your mic is open. Good morning, Twin Cities, and the listening audience from around the country. My name is Lena Moran. I'm a state representative from District 65A in St. Paul, Minnesota, and I am really excited to have this opportunity to be present in this moment this morning to talk about the issues um, of women, women of color, in the state of Minnesota. Um, I am a fourth-term legislator, just completed my seventh term in the House of Representatives. Um, In 2010, I was elected into the House of Representatives as the first African-American person from St. Paul. Uh, We are a body of 134 legislators. Uh, I'm also the deputy minority leader in the House of Representatives and the co-chair of the People of Color Indigenous Caucus, which we call the Posse Caucus. Um, I, I currently sit on three committees, the Education Committee, Health and Human Service Committee, and Jobs and Energy. Um, and, and then again, just really happy to share with the listening audience what took place this last legislative session and is absolutely open to any questions that may come from the audience. You know, let's make this real comfortable for you. Uh, My mind goes back to, and that's why this was important to me, uh, right around that 2010 period, uh, our commentator, Pastor Devin Miller, uh, who is a part of our team out of Texas, he's relocated there, and uh, he is on his book tour, The Miracles of Jesus, and so much more. But he was up close and personal with you, and you took the time uh, to talk with him, and you had you were new, fresh out, <laughs> you know, fresh out. The, uh, the box there, and that was exciting for uh, the state, et cetera. So, you know, just reminiscing back then and where you are right now, leapfrogging 
forward. Let's do this. Let's just break this open. What's different from the view that you were looking through when you accepted your appointment compared to today, just compared to today? Well, a lot has changed. Um, In 2010, uh, I came in fresh as a mother. I'm a mother of seven kids. Um, uh, ranging from 23 to uh, 33 now, I believe, or 34. You know, I'm a grandmother of five. I was very, you know, active in, in, in engaged in the community community around issues of housing. You know, we had a transit that was being built. Uh, I was really concerned about the impact that the light rail was going to have on uh, my taxes as a homeowner. Felt really um, felt really um, um, challenged about the impact that that would have on uh, on me as a homeowner, as a mother, um, and the elders in the community. Um, and I wasn't really politically minded, right? I was just really concerned about the issues that was impacting my community and was keenly aware that um, as I was organizing in the community and bringing others um, into this arena about lifting up our own voices in our community to impact change, that that was connected to a, um, that that our issues in our community was connected to a political process and that we could not do that in a silo. Community organizing, political organizing, went hand in hand, and that we as community members needed to lift our voices up and look at policies that keep and had kept our community in a place, and that we were about, and along with myself, was about creating the change that I believe that we needed in policies that created the practices that we see back in our community. So I, I went into a legislative session sworn in in 2011 um, um, in the minority, so we didn't have the majority in the House, and we had just lost the majority in the Senate. And so we was under a Republican majority. And I say that because I never expected um, how that could impact my leadership or lack of leadership because in that body at the state, the majority dictates the agenda bills that were heard in committee. The majority would dictate how money is spent, where it is spent, and how it is spent. So as a Democrat, a progressive Democrat who came into the body with my um, energy and and excitement to, you know, help move our state forward, I was in a rude awakening that um, that wasn't going to happen likely. Uh, And it doesn't happen likely because, again, um, you cannot move any bills unless a bill goes through a committee and it's heard in a committee and that you have the support of a committee chair. And so everything that I valued, that I cared about, or wanted, or how I saw my world and my worldview was under attack. 
and it was very dark. I mean, you can feel the heaviness, the heaviness of a majority who were cutting housing, cutting education, um, cutting, you know, jobs and job creation and what that looked like, health and human service, you know, for PCA workers, for, I mean, it it was just so heavy and dark. Public safety, the bills that was coming out of public safety was those, what, we, what I would call um, the shoot first bill, meaning that if, you know, a person feel that they are, um, if they just feel as if they, that someone's going to hurt them, that they can shoot them and then shoot them dead. So it was a lot going on in that first year. And the reality of where we were in our state was that the things that I cared about as a Democrat and as a progressive was not going to get a hearing. Um, and so what I felt myself doing that first year is um, building relationships, getting to know my colleagues, Democrats, um, learning, you know, what it, what it was that they cared about. And I took that same concept and I began to build those same types of relationships with my Republican colleagues because for me it was really important that I learned from them who they were and what drives them, what motivates them to the worldview that they have, and then how I can find some alignment, right, if if that's possible at all, about how I can move my district forward and get the resources that we needed you know, to be a strong community that's looking at creating strong and stronger families in the district that I represent. Um, Thank you. And Oh, I'm mm-hmm. sorry. Go ahead. Continue. Continue. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And, and so um, I spent the whole first few months, couple of months, just, just doing that because in reality, I introduced deals around education, I, um, around child care, that's really important to me uh, in my community. I introduced bills, um, but found myself not getting any hearings. And so uh, I worked with a St. Paul school lobbyist. And it was a year where St. Paul schools were moving from uh, this concept around strong community, strong schools. You remember back in the day when when I was coming up, the the school that I went to was a school right there in my community. And because we went to the same school in the community, you know, we knew often enough we knew the kids in the school, the kids we knew the parents, we we knew the families because we all went to the same school. And so in the state of Minnesota we have um we was in a place where you can decide to go to any school that you want to go to. Which I have, you know, have its pros and its cons to that also. Because you can decide to, you know, try to get into a you know, you may, you know, believe that the school that's in your district is, is not as a great of a school as a school that's, you know, ten miles away. But that has its challenges too because our kids were were, you know, spending you know, 45 minutes, an hour, just on a bus to get to school. 
And so we was moving to this strong community, strong school model here in St. Paul, the school board, board was, and they needed parents to make, to make a decision around what school they wanted to send their kids to. And there was a, like a debt. The school had this deadline that they had to meet within a certain time within the time that we were meeting from session. So this bill had to go through early enough in sessions that would allow parents the opportunity to make that decision for themselves. I am a huge parent advocate in allowing parents to have the decision-making process. That's important to me. And so I was given this bill because I also sat on the education committee. And um, I got a hearing. I got a hearing for this bill. Uh, which was really was, uh, uh, again, about allowing parents to make this choice about what school is best for their child within a certain time span. And it went through a committee. And so what I found out and what I did in those committees, because I had been talking to my colleagues on the other side of the aisle, and what I learned from them is that they believe strongly in giving parents control of decision-making processes. And, hey, I I agree. And, you know, I believe that parents should be a part of making the decisions about their family and their kids themselves. And it moved through that committee. It went on to, I think it was a a small, I think maybe a small fiscal note that was attached to it. It was some dollars. Maybe it's very small dollars attached to it. So it had to go into education finance. So it had to move through the body through different committees. And it made it through those committees with the support of the Republicans. And then finally it made it to the House floor. Now on a House floor, what happens on a House floor is that that is where 134 legislators are because each legislator have different committees. And so if it's going through education, if it's going, if a bill is going through education committees, there are many members who are not, hearing that bill, and they don't know the impact or the pros and cons of that type of bill. So it eventually made it to the House floor um, and came before the body on the House floor. So this is how politics is. So um, actually the day that it reached the House floor, I had a family emergency, so I could not present that bill on the House floor. In the meantime, um, the next day, another bill came to the House floor, which was an education bill. So within that education bill was definitely my bill. But there were so many other bills in what we call an omnibus bill, which is an array of different bills that have gone through the body that – has become a part of a big package of bills. So within that big package of bills, there were so many cuts that was happening um, in education. There were a lot of bills that was supporting, you know, private schools that was taking money from our public schools where you find a big majority of our African our black kids who are in public schools who would could would not they was pulling dollars from that to give to private schools and private schools is fine if that is what a parent choose to do um, but we as a 
legislature are mandated constitutionally to support our public school system. And there was just so many other stuff in that deal that I just could not vote for that bigger omnibus deal. And so I voted no on the passage of that deal. So as a freshman legislator, I wasn't aware that if I did not vote for that bigger package, that they would not bring my bill back to be heard. Even though they were supporting it, they had decided they would punish me and not bring that bill back onto the House floor for a vote. And so I went to my colleagues on on the on the Democratic side to say, "Hey, what's going on here? My my bill is on the calendar. We have a calendar that shows the bills that will be introduced for that day. It was just sitting there, and it sat there, day after day. And so I, I was told, this is some inside scoop that you guys get to hear, that I was told by my majority that." The chair of the education committee is blocking my bill for being heard because she's upset that I did not vote for her bill. Eventually, I had to go to the chair of the education committee and make a formal request to have my bill brought back. And she clearly said to me, well, your bill is not going to be heard because you did not vote for my bill. So I'm a little upset that, you're not, that you did not vote for this bigger package of bills that I really felt was going to hurt Minnesota, hurt our schools here in the urban core, and definitely hurt our, hurt our black kids. And so I did not vote for it. So, you know, I did what every first-term legislator do. I said I didn't know. <laughs> You know, I didn't know that this was the type of process that we had that you were hold on a bill for being heard that's that's good for not only good for St. Paul and Minneapolis kids, but it's good for any kids across the state because what that bill also did was that it allowed parents to have a voice, let's say in the, in, in the city of St. Paul, that if you live within a mile of a school, you are given transportation. But you have to live, um, you have to live outside, I'm sorry, you have to live outside of a mile of a school in order to get transportation to a school. If you live within a mile of a school, you had to walk to school. So there were parents who had children in kindergarten, first, second, third, fourth, fifth grade, who lived on the edge, right there on the edge within a mile, who did not want their kids, who didn't, don't, don't have transportation. So that child would have to walk. And often enough, they would either have to walk by themselves or the parents would walk with them if they didn't have to be at, to work themselves. So that child was walking to school. So parents were opting out of that, and they were sending their kids to other schools and other districts away from their home because parents did not have transportation and they did not want their child to walk to school alone by themselves. And thus, again, I talk about that child being on a bus for 45 an hour trying to get to the school. But what it also did for that parent is that that parent had no connections to that school. They had no relationship with the teachers or the principals or other folks in the school because the school was so far away from where they live that they never had that relationship or that connection to the school, 
It made them hard for them to go to parent-teacher conference or participate because they were so far away from the school. So if a parent can make a request and say, well, there's other mitigating factors that are in the way from um, that I believe needs that, that will be good for my child to have transportation pick them up. Maybe there was some, um, you know, in the urban court, maybe you know, the, the parent didn't want their child to work through certain neighborhoods by themselves. Or maybe the child was um, challenged in some other way that they did not want them to walk by themselves to school. And they can request transportation from the school district. So that bill allowed that these exceptions to happen. And so parents in the rural community could also do the same thing. So it was a statewide bill with that was really, really helpful for parents in a decision-making process. So that was my piece to the chair of the education committee that not only did it support kids right here in St. Paul, families right here in St. Paul, but this was also can help and support those rural kids who, you know, would benefit from this type of bill. And eventually, you know what, the bill came back to the House floor. I remember standing up and, you know, we, we had to speak to our bill, speaking to my bill. And I had talked to my other colleagues about also, you know, standing up, supporting my bill, and who would speak first and who would speak second or third. And I remember giving my pitch about, to the body about why this was a good bill and why I was asking for their support. And I remember sitting down as a first-term legislator, first time doing this, thinking, ah, they are going to gut this bill. And I made my pitch. I sat down, and I waited for the next person to stand. And who stood next was the chair of the Education Finance Committee, who was a Republican. And I tell you, I cannot remember much of what he said, but what I do remember him saying at the end of his statement was, I'm asking colleagues on this side of the aisle to vote yes for this bill. They voted yes. So this bill, this my first bill, passed off the House floor with a vote, I believe, of 128 yeses with seven or eight votes, Republicans who decided not to vote for it. And that bill became law in the state of Minnesota. So some things do happen, you know, when you, um, some things do happen. And um, I became very, very uh, excited about to have, about having that bill pass off the, the House floor that not only which supported St. Paul, and it needed, we absolutely needed it at that moment, but um, was a bill that passed off the House floor with bipartisan support and with a Republican majority. doesn't happen often, but it did happen that time. So I was really <laughs> you know what? We are, you are exactly a model of what we can accomplish even when it is baptismal by fire. Uh, 
So (laughs) a lot can be read into what I just clarified there, that that definition. Now, you made reference Mm -hmm. to, uh, as it relates to when a a bill is dealt with, when a bill, uh, literally, you are just ignored uh, when it all boils down to it. Let let me do this, and we're going to get right to our commentators on this second, as we go into this second hour, and we're going to be robust and give it all that we've got, because we, our listeners, we need you to understand, yes, you are in the right place. Those of you who are brand new, this is the business of Monday Money Talk, and it is hashtag Black Money Team, and that has to do with keeping the money in the black. That's where you want to be. The bottom line is when it comes down to it all, business professionals, corporate executives who have the authority to also move some things, but let's be real, behind the doors, there are businesses, structures that also are impacted by the movement of the politics, the movement of politics. And when you don't understand what's going on and how it works, and here we have a woman who is being transparent of taking pieces out of her own experience, just being so excited about being able to move some things for the people, period. Then there's much for you to glean from what she said. Let me do this. Definition of politics, the activities associated with the governance of a country or other areas, especially the debate or conflict among individuals or parties hoping, having to achieve power. But here's another side of it. Just this simple. It's the process of making decisions applying to all members of each group. More narrowly, it refers to achieving and exercising positions of governance, organized control over a human community, particularly a state. So, again, businesses, we always keep you at the beginning of all of this on Monday. We want to make sure that you're understanding some things that maybe you just weren't quite clear about. And so this is an opportunity that you can glean from. So now as we move this forward, she has clearly given us the really the relevance of what's happening for women in politics, in money, no matter how you look at this, money, politics, or women, here it is. So I encourage you to definitely take notes and glean from this because you've got things that are very important with the movement of whatever's happening right now. Now, uh, Representative Moran, we're going to kick this off, but I want to ask you this question from a political standpoint as the representative uh, that you are. Number one, define deputy uh, uh, minority leader 
before I say another word, define deputy minority leader, which is your new leadership position. Yes. So um, there's a hierarchy in politics, right? And we see it May I have your voice the- just a little bit? Bring your volume just a little bit more. Okay. So, of course, is this better? Mm, let's see. Are you close to your... I'm close. I can get closer. How's this? Okay, I just want you to speak a little bit louder. That's all. Go ahead. We don't want to miss okay. any of this for anyone. Yes, go ahead. Yes. So as you know, there is a hierarchy process in politics. You know, we see it play out, play out all the time at the federal level. So in the House of Representatives, if you are in the minority or majority, uh, you have the speaker, if you are in the majority, if you are in the minority as we are now, you have a minority leader who is in the same compatible as the speaker, but with just less power. So you have the minority leader, and then you have the deputy minority leaders, and then you have some assistant leaders. So I am right under the minority leader. The deputy minority leader is to... Uh, work closely with the minority leader to strategize our position, to um, kind of like get bills coming through the body. We want to work our um, our colleagues to see um, where they are with votes. We, my part as a deputy minority leader, is to uh, also look at fundraising for the caucus look at um, um, recruiting candidates to run in 2018, recruiting candidates, train candidates, and support candidates to run and win in 2018 to get back the majority in the House so we can push our own Democratic progressive agenda, Um, but really is to uh, support the minority leader in our caucus on the strategy that we need to be moving towards in, in alignment with the bills that's coming through the body, um, how we speak on bill, what our focus may be, and how we as a caucus need to get our message out to the people in our district. Because what I know um, and, and is very clear at when we talk about the black community is that we're not always tuned into a legislative process. We don't always know what's going on at the Capitol. You know, we, you know, don't always know what it means to introduce a bill, have the bill, or to have the power to go to your legislator, pitch an ideal to your legislator, and have that ideal become a bill that can possibly become law. So that is the work that I do as a deputy minority leader. All right. And before we close out, um, we will make note to what you just said. May not have any idea about that piece right there. And we'd like to have you just give us a one, two, three, or an ABC on that for clarity. I want to 
point out the example of Thor Construction and what is happening on that project right now and the significance of what uh, Thor Construction uh, will mean to the uh, corridor in Minneapolis, the north area of Minneapolis, running along that same area where formerly there back in the day there was a uh, a thriving little popula- uh, uh, population of businesses meaning uh, there was restaurants and as well as McDonald's was there etc but now the focus is to bring a multi-billion dollar uh complex there office space uh target Corporation is on board with that to bring uh, the uh, Target store there and so much more. So I'm bringing that up because what can you say as it relates to uh, how was politics a part of that? In other words, was there a bill that was presented that helped that move forward? And if it wasn't Absolutely. Thor, then another business. Go ahead. Absolutely. Uh, I, and I do know Robbie Thorne, you know. And so what is so important about Thorne Construction getting that contract came through what we did in 2016, I believe, around equity, right? So equity is all about looking at, was looking at the black community, there was um, uh, a report that came out that said that black wages had fell by 14%, had gone from 31000 a year to like 27000 Black wages and black wages alone fell. And so the governor made a commitment to focus on equity, economics, jobs, opportunity, entrepreneurship, small business, looking at the black community which eventually expanded to community of color. But, um, and so he made that commitment to say that he's going to invest $100 million on equity. The, the Senate, you know, made a commitment to uh, invest uh, $91 million. And then the House, where I am under the Republican majority, their commitment to equity was $0 nor did they even want to say the word and say that there was a disparity within the black community around wages, black contracts, whatever. And so having someone construction was an intentionality that came out of the house with myself and, you know, other folks like our Senator Hayden Champion and our allies to say that we have to make a response, we have to respond to this inequity and injustice we see happening around black wages, black incomes in the black community. But we also have to invest in organizations and businesses that are doing great work on behalf of our black kids in our community, but are not getting the contracts from the state to do the work just as any other white organization has, is, continue to get from our state. And so it was very intentional that we look at uh, organizations and black businesses in our community and do some direct appropriations right into those organizations and those small and those businesses 
in our um, in our state. And Thorn Construction is just is, was just one of those entities that have done great work, that know the process, that of course um, had you know some of those relationships um, within the community, within the state, within our counties, and you know we can we mean the state folks, you know on both sides of the aisle can look at that company and say, why not? Why not give this to a black-owned construction company to do the work, who has the capacity to do the work, just as we have done for any other um, business in the state of Minnesota? And it makes a difference right. when we invest in black organizations, right, and black businesses, because they're, you know, they're not going to be one that says, well, you know, we can't meet this mandate that the Department of Human Rights has put out that we have set a goal of having 38% of people of color on our job, but we're going to also, we have a program that is going to be an apprentice. It's, it's a job, that's a job training that we're doing the hiring and being very intentional of lifting up from our community and giving people livable wage jobs so that they can take care of themselves and their family. We know that that will happen with a storm construction company. It's important that we do that, you know, because when we do that, we are invested in people just that that comes right from our community. So I'm excited. All right. I'm excited that yes, you know, he had the okay. capacity to do that. That we at a state level was able to see beyond our own biases and prejudice and racism, and and do the right thing, and to invest in a black-owned business. All right, so we have indicated, and uh, there is in the comment section on Grace, I'm sorry, on GMN Live TV, Facebook, uh, under the show promo for today, uh, there is some detail about Thor, T H O R, construction uh, headquarters mm-hmm. project gets target backing in the $36 million project will include, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm saying to our listeners, businesses, take a look at that black interest. Those mm-hmm. of you that are strong in your business acumen and you know that you can impact, et cetera, look at that, whatever that process was and how it came about and, uh, you know, pay attention to it. And so this is going to be very important. I want to get right to uh, Dr. Lewis Foreman Jr. He's going to uh, deal with, because as I said, we've been tackling for months now a series in parts. So I encourage folks to literally chime in and look at what's been talked about and charged to on the business of Monday money talk, politicians, women, men, come on, uh, and, and, and we're not leaving anything out. And uh, some of the best of the best voices and insight in this catalog and podcast of information. And so, again, I want to go directly to uh, Dr. Lois, and uh, we're going to uh, – talk about uh, government resources slash response, which also included designated dollars. We kind of just talked about that just a little bit to set him up 
created opportunities and their impact. So, uh, Dr. Foreman, please go ahead. Your mic is open. All right. Uh, Amen, I would say. (laughs) I want to say thank you so much to uh, Representative Moran for giving us a very thorough overview um, and understand the underpinnings of how things work in the political arena to get uh, bills, legislation passed, uh, just invaluable. Um, Thank you for sharing your personal story, uh, again, of what it meant to kind of jump in that arena uh, with the right heart and to have to be educated on the process. Um, And that's a tip to all of us in our listening audience and for those of us who are going to pursue bigger things We've got to know that we got to start somewhere. And so you may not start knowing everything. In fact, you won't start knowing everything. But if you just get started, you can move some things forward and become to a place of proficiency and execution. Um, you know, you gave such a tremendous overview on so many things. Uh, but I do want to zero down on designated dollars. And as you started to uh, touch upon through the Thor project, that that was kind of spearheaded as a response to the equities um, legislation, the disparities ex- legislation that was brought out last year by Governor Dayton. And I think uh, at the end of the day, um, if we wound up with $35 million being allocated uh, at least in uh, fiscal year 2016, um, and then uh, and that money kind of, again, we is that having an impact or not designated dollars created opportunities and their impact or not, we're seeing some impact um, from what, I, what I'm finding. Uh, I represent a group of minority contractors um, in, in the uh, community and also do development and work with entrepreneurs as well to go to the next level in their businesses. And I'm just finding a lot of ignorance, for one. People don't know about these, this equity funding. Um, as you talked about, transition takes place. Originally, we were having a conversation regarding the African-American community and the disparities that existed there and the governor's response to that um, as dollars and legislation, I guess, got got approved. What came down was, uh, as you said, $35 million for communities of color or for people of color. Um, and again, you know, a lot of people in the community are not aware of these dollars. And then the last thing I want you to kind of address, if you would, recap, is um, that $35 million was allocated for last year. What we understood was that there was supposed to be a multi-year funding cycle with $17 million additional coming out for fiscal year 2017, and then also uh, another $17 million for fiscal year 2018. Um, as you pointed to that right now, the House is a Republican-dominated House. Um, that, as you share with us, there's an impact on that. When you have the majority, you can get things done or cause things to not move forward. Um, are those dollars still moving forward? I've heard nothing about 2017 in the media or any RFPs that have gone out or 2018. Um, and there I've heard winds of that, that those funds are trying to be blocked. So can you speak to, to that a little bit? Yes, um, and, and thank you. You, 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 um, you wrapped this up really, you know, good and, and, and 
quite frankly, um, I'm impressed that, you know, you are, you are informed and you've been watching, you've been paying attention, and, you know, um, we all got to do a, a little bit of that. And, and then what we do and what we do do, we got to just make sure that we share it with other people, right, so that we can become more informed and so others can become aware of what's going on. So there was there was definitely was some concern um, that the 2017 legislation um, in, in regards to equity, those dollars, those funding were under attack. And I know in the in the house where I equity dollars, they were supposed to be funded for twenty, also for you know not just for twenty seventeen, but for eighteen and nineteen. And in the house, the Republicans took all of those dollars, those base dollar funding back. They took them back. Right? Mm. Um, which is what happens, right? When, you know, you have a Republican majority in the House and Republican majority in the Senate, you know, and they said, you know, in the House, it was hard for them to even say the word equity, that disparities mm. are real. And so they originally were saying they really took them back but through some meeting and negotiation, um, a, a number of last year equity dollars and programs will continue to be funded in fall 18 and 19. So those who receive those okay. dollars in, in 26 and 27, they will, most of those programs will get that funding for in 18 and 19. But there's no funding for the fall of 2021 20, and beyond. Now, originally, the 2016 legislature, pardon me? I'm sorry, go ahead. So, originally, the 2016 legislature provided for ongoing funding for these programs. They were in the base dollars, ongoing. But the 2017 legislation changed that to funding only, only for fall 18 and 19. So, some existing equity programs they will continue to receive funding on an ongoing basis, uh, some at a reduced amount and some at an increased amount. And one of those is job training for women in high-wage, high-demand jobs. There are traditionally male occupations like STEMs and the trade. Those programs will get some right now. They are, they are in the budget to get some ongoing continuous funding, which I'm excited about because we know that black women are the breadwinners and are often the breadwinners in their household in high numbers. So to create a pathway for them to go into STEMs and trades and get the training to do that and get livable wage jobs is really important, not just for women, but for families, for our community, and thus for our state. Uh, so that's where we are with, with those dollars. Sure. And can I drill down with you just a little bit just for clarity and so that, again, our listening audience walks away um, our community walks away with the information they need to to participate, to benefit from these dollars, to to know what is so. So, um, I what I hear you saying is that categorically, the different categories that um, were designated um, in 2016, that's going to continue to carry on through 2019. So, women being one, um, business mm-hmm. being another education being another. So there's there's a number of categories uh, that have been funded. So the categories will stay the same. Uh, And there will be funding uh, for those categories. So uh, some, yes, 
others know, and then there's some new equity dollars. So um, some programs, like I, I represent St. Paul, and, and, and over here in St. Paul, um, I was able to get some equity dollars for Ujama. Ujama got okay. some equity dollars. Uh, like the, the YWCA here in St. Paul uh, also got equity dollars. They will continue to get those dollars. They won't get it continuously that was originally put in the, the bills in 2016. The Republicans sure. in 2017 changed that and said, you will only get dollars for 18 and 19 and you're done. But they also created some new equity funding for other programs and not only for the black community, but other communities of color. So those are some new existing dollars. And the one thing that we was able to maintain was looking at, you know, programs um, for job training for the women in high demand, um, high wage, high demand, traditional, non-traditional jobs that is usually occupied by males that would get some continuous dollars. Okay. Um, that make- all right. So it does. It because- does. I'm, I'm gonna keep opening, keep expanding. Because again, you and I come from a different perspective, and you you know from the bottom to the top exactly what's going on. Uh, I've mm-hmm. done my best to stay diligently involved in the discussion and discovery. Uh, so one, I guess, opportunities is is, is our, our 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 buzzword. Um, are mm-hmm. there opportunities still? The way that things are lined up for people who weren't in the process last year again didn't even know about it, had no idea that money was, was being sent out there. Are there opportunities for them to come to the table in, in this year, fiscal year 2017, 2018, 2019, and be able to participate or, or benefit from, from those dollars? So we work on a, a biannual process. So every odd year, like 2017, is a budget year. So in a budget year, we 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 say you know I think we had like forty six billion dollars that we had to look at education, healthcare, transportation, you know all these areas, um, and where we had to complete a budget. In regards to equity dollars, there were some direct appropriations to community businesses and organizations that I talked about. Some that was funded in 2016, they they, they received money in 27 and will continue to receive money in 18 and 19. So those are the direct corporations. I do believe that um, for those organizations out there who are doing work, doing good work, may not have the capacity, they may need to, you know, collaborate with another organization, to be at capacity or be able to do the work that they need to do to impact, you know, community families, um, is that they, I believe that there are dollars within these that they can do a, like an RFP and begin to get some grant dollars to from the state for their organization. But it has to go through the Department of Deeds. Okay, uh, I, I think I follow this. So now, one one thing I think that that could be missing. Now, um, again, in 2016, what we had was 35 million allocated um, 
10 million of that was actually directly, if I can say this word, facilitated uh, by DEED. Uh, they put out RFP, invited the community to come and to request those funds. Then another $25 million, so the bulk, the lion's share of that disbursement actually got dispersed to other community agencies who um, administer funds, who are involved in the work of community development directly, quote-unquote, on the ground. Um, and, and, again, we don't know a whole lot about what happened with those dollars. We have an idea of where they went. Again, things are, you know, printed, you know, uh, agencies like Neon, Mita, NDC, um, others were, you know, recipients of that $25 million. And, again, they were charged with getting that down into the community. Um, and so we know where the money was went to get to the community. Um, mm-hmm. there's, li- there's little reporting, at least that I've seen, done on who in the community has gotten the money. And then will that same process apply for the ongoing years where, you know, certain amounts going to be, you know, administered by deed, um, certain amounts going to be given to community agencies, and, again, are opportunities being created in 2018, 2019, uh, maybe in 2017, or not? Is it If you got in on the ground floor, you're all good. But if you missed the boat, it's already sailed, it's too late for you. Well, you know, um, I I never said in my opening statement or any words in this conversation that politics is fair, because it's not. It's no way by no means fair, Mm -hmm. and it really is at the whims of the majority and how they see how they want to do the work. Now, in 2016, I would say in, in a big way that we get equity dollars because we had the Senate majority who had to negotiate or we had a, 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 a House majority, a Republican House majority that had to negotiate with a Senate Democratic majority and a Democratic governor. And so what that means is that they recognized that they did not have all the power to do whatever they wanted to do. They had to negotiate because, remember, the House of Representatives gave zero dollars towards equity. In order to move a bill off the House floor, you have to have a consensus between the Senate and the House who has to agree on a a budget to bring it before the governor to sign into law, right? So here we are in 2017 where we have a Republican House and Republican Senate. They don't have to negotiate with Democrats at all. They just set their agenda and put it before the governor, right? And so, um, you know, but we still, you know, there's some negotiating that happened. You know, the governor was really, really straightforward that uh, we that he wanted this state to continue to move forward with investment in equity dollars to organizations. But you mentioned some of the organizations in your statement who got to the Neons in the Minneapolis and other organizations in Minneapolis that got some dollars. You know, there was some, uh, there was some black-led organization here in St. Paul that got dollars. There was other communities of color that also got uh, dollars. You know, uh, Mong American Partnership. Um, gosh, what is this? Um, it's a Latina um, 
organization over in, in West St. Paul that's been leading for the Latino community. So there was other organizations of color. Clues. That, that clues, exactly, that also get dollars, direct appropriations that went into, you know, their organization. And then there was money set aside besides, you know, that went into DEEP, where DEEP was able to look at some different criterias within DEEP, which is the Minnesota Department of Employment and Economic Development, that they also had set aside some dollars for other organizations, you know, to uh, do an RFP to get dollars for their community, for their organization, too. And they were broken up into different areas um, in which different organizations can could apply for, for, for dollars. And so right now in 2017, um, let me see, can I uh, find out, do I have that information directly, what happened? Because as you know, you know, we, we ended a session a little bit in chaos. Uh-huh. Um, and so I, I don't have the information in front of me exactly. You know, some of those same organizations from 2016 were able to get some money going into 27, into 27, into 2018 and 19. Not all of them got dollars. You know, there was new organizations. I will give you an example of one new organization that we all know about that. Um, Got new additional dollars, which would be like Summit OIC. They were able to get money this time around. Who did not get money? I believe they did not get money in 2016. And there's other, some few other organizations that got dollars to this time around. There's a little small uh, um, boxing um, organization. I think that's over in. North Minneapolis, they got a small dollar amount. So there was other things based on what the Republicans wanted to and decided that they wanted to support. And some of them themselves, you know, brought bills to committee, and they said, well, these are our pet projects that we want to invest in, that we are going to invest in. And they, you know, those are the ones who got the money. That was part part of the negotiation process. That was part of the negotiation process, specific okay. ones that they decided that they wanted to invest in, and that's what happened. You know, it's all part of the negotiation process. It's all a part of being part of the leadership. You know, there was bills. There was, you know, there's an organization over here in St. Paul that's been supported, not only that's been supported by the city, the county, um, the philanthropic community that is showing outcomes, that's working directly with Youth, the community ambassador program coming out of the Halle Q. Brown Center with the community ambassador going directly into the community, hitting those kids in the community, you know, making sure that, you know, connecting with them, building relationships with ambassadors that look just like them, getting them back in school, creating jobs, jobs training, you know, doing uh, that's, that's, that's creating internships with these young people down in downtown St. Paul with those businesses in downtown St. Paul. I mean, just yielding really good results. Evidence-based approach that got like zero dollars. Nothing. 
you know. Huh. So, huh. you know, the Republicans didn't think that that bill that went through the body was worth investing in. So it got no dollars. Two two questions. Uh, I hope I'm not getting too loud here. I'm at a site where there's construction going on. <laughs> um, no, you're fine. So so one one I want to thank you again um, for giving us an overview of how things work. Uh, I think you, what you things that you said about again when you have to deal with a um, quote unquote Republican controlled you know House or Republican controlled Senate. Um, and we have no majority, if you will, or power seat at the table, then we're kind of at uh, the mercy or have to deal with the whim. So I, I hear a call for people really understanding, again, voting, that, again, all these are elected yeah. officials, and, uh, you know, that's where your vote counts. A lot of times as a, as a community of color, African-American community, we feel like, you know, we don't need to be involved in that process, but I, I hear clearly – why we need to be involved in that process today. Um, and then the other part of that question is, um, once you are elected, you are elected representative for us, um, how much weight or, or tell us a little bit about that constituent process and how that can impact the the process, if it's relevant. Um, but it just popped in my mind, again, you're, you're there to do a job. You need to go before committees and to get legislation approved. What does that constituent backing do uh, for you and other legislators to equip them with power, the support that they need to move some things forward? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and what you just stated about the, the power in your vote is so critical. The power of your vote, your voice being your vote, your vote being your voice, tell us as elected officials, who's present, who's paying attention, who we need to listen to, and who we do not need to listen to. And let me say that again, because, you know, I, 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 I say this again, politics is not always fair and just. You know, so with politicians, the, the most important thing that is cared about by a politician is those who are voting. I just want us to hear that as, uh-huh. as, a, as a community uh-huh. of black people who say our, 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 my vote don't matter. I'm not, I'm not going to do it. What difference does it make? We don't see you. We don't see you, nor do we hear you if you're not voting. I just want to make that clear. That's just where we are. Ain't nothing fair about uh-huh. it or right about it. But that is the system in the process, which is why we know our ancestors knew the power and why they died to just have something as simple as to go to the polls and vote because they knew the impact that it had. It makes a difference. It also makes a difference, you know, a lot of my work here from day one, when I went into, when I was sworn in and went into my office and a month in, I knew why it was invaluable to help my community at that capital because those who were come, coming before me, and other legislators did not look at look like me who was telling me why it was important for me to support their organization, why it was important to me to give their organization funding, why it was important for me to support them. 
This is something that is done not only to me, but every legislator in that body are getting is getting someone coming before them to sway them to either su- to support them, to invest in them. But what I was not seeing as a legislator were people that looked, organizations and people that looked like me coming before me and other legislators telling us why we needed to vote, why we needed to support their organization, why we needed to fund their organization, talking about the impact and the outcome that their organization was having on real people's lives back in our community. A lot of our organizations are actually doing transformational work. They're doing transformational work. But we as legislators don't know that because we're not showing up and introducing ourselves, bringing a one-pager with us and, and leaving it behind so we can have something to read and, and, and see what's going on with that organization. That is crucial that we put ourselves in, in a position where we don't feel comfortable. Sometimes you got to get uncomfortable to get comfortable, to yeah. make a difference, to be present. It was nothing more disheartening to me in my first term as I was sitting on the Public Safety Committee, and there was some crazy stuff coming out that Public Safety Committee in that chair's mouth and the bills he wanted to push in the state of Minnesota and how he wanted when we was eliminating, we was um, cutting every committee it was cutting them by at least, you know, 5 6 7%. But they wanted to cut the Department of Human Rights by 65%. Just do away with it. Render it powerless. And I wow. brought an amendment. Yes. And I brought an amendment back to give those dollars back to the Department of Human Services. And I remember the chair saying to me, Representative Moran, if this is important for your community, then where is the people? as we look out into the audience, right, that that was not there, right? So showing up, being present in in the Capitol, in those committee hearings is crucial. That influenced decision-making as legislators. And sometimes it it stops some of that crazy rhetoric that we may hear. Because they look out and see a body of black folks out there advocating for themselves and their community and their kids and their schools. That is powerful, and it's needed. And I know it's hard for our community to always to show up, to you know, to be able to see an email or phone call go out and say we need you the next day. Uh-huh. But we have to do it. We have to find a way to do it. And I know it's hard. You know, you're working. You can't take off work because you don't have a sick day coming, or you know, we don't want to move move sick leave or pay leave. You know, pay sick leave. It's hard. I get it. You know, but I moved a bill through um, to the body in, three thir- in, in 2013, 14, when we came back in the majority, called the Promised Neighborhood Bill. It, that give us a way of looking at education and funding education in a different way. That's not just on the formula. That is not just looking at teachers. It's not just looking at a school building, but it's looking at real people. Right, so the Promised Neighbors, an initiative that came out of New York City, out of Harlem Children's Zone, that looked at uh-huh. homelessness. Right, that looked at 
parents who may not be employable or do, do not have a job, that we can work with them to get them a job, who may be dealing with mental illness, that we're working with mental illness, that we're not just working with one child in the family, but we're looking at the whole, all the children in the family. And we're looking at families and not just children, right? But you cannot uh-huh. expect good outcomes for, from kids who are homeless. They need to be stabilized, right? So I carry that Promise Neighborhood Bill. And for the first time in history, we passed and we are funding a Promise Neighborhood in St. Paul and in North Minneapolis. But you know how that funding happened? It happened because I partnered with parents who was in that program, parents who were on subsidized housing, who were being really challenged. And I invited them to come up to the Capitol and shadow me at the Capitol. I, I, I worked with them to help them, the, those who had time who can do one day here and one day there, you know, to sit in a committee hearing. I partnered with them and the Wilder Foundation to help them, give them some tools around lobbying, how to be effective at sharing their story, how to show up in the Capitol one day and be uncomfortable walking through those halls but show up three or four, to five, three or four or five times to become to take ownership of the Capitol and learn how to pull legislators off the House floor and share their story. I invited the governor into one of our schools, Maxfield School over here in St. Paul, and brought in our community partners to introduce themselves to the governor, to share their stories and the impact that they're having on everyday people's lives. And had one parent who who shared her story with the governor about how her and her son used to ride the bus every night from downtown Minneapolis to downtown St. Paul. Her son, who was, I believe, 10 at the time. And that's what they did. And when it became light outside and how she had to stay woke all night to make sure that her son was okay. And that in the morning they would get off the bus and go into a gas station or something. She would wash him up and take him into school. But he was failing in school. His attention was bad in school. He was not successful. And then he was able to get housing through our dollars that we're giving around affordable housing and the dollars that we gave to the Wilder Foundation to work with those parents, to stabilize those parents. And now they had a home. And because they had a home, and she pulled out her pocket this old tattered uh, letter, and she unfolded that letter, and she read it to the governor that came from a teacher who said, I am so proud of, I can't remember the young boy's name, sorry, I'm going to call him Lavelle, that Lavelle is doing so good in school now, that he's doing his homework, and that he is on task and on part with the rest of the kids and how she cried, and how she held on to this letter that she carried in her pocket just every single day. She read it to the governor and watched our governor cry and then share with the body that he too himself has struggled, and he struggled with alcohol and got up to go give her a hug. And she became the messenger of the message of why we needed to invest in this holistic approach around a promised neighborhood. Right, and when we went into uh, a government shutdown, the governor said 
that in order for me to come back and bring this legislative back together, I need this, this, and I need to promise neighborhoods to be supported, to be funded. The work that happens when we show up, when we share our stories with others, right? Come from real people sharing real stories. Come from our organization showing up, talking about the impact that they have on real uh, people's lives, but they're struggling back in our community because they don't have the resources. They don't have the support. They are, they are working on little of nothing to do what they do, but they do it because they're committed to our families and our communities. That's the impact of real people showing up, having a voice, sharing their, their story, and voting to make a difference about what comes out of elections and politicians' mouths. <laughs> what come out of their mouth, and what come out of how they look at our community. We are the storytellers of our community, not somebody else. Wow. Uh, thank you so much for that, Representative. And I'm not going to hog the mic. <laughs> I know that my other uh, commentators are here, and uh, uh, I don't know where we want to take discussion from here, whether it's time All right, to here's part what- two. All right, it's time for part two, and we're gonna we're going to do that. We're going to have um, Deputy Minority Leader, uh, Minnesota State Representative Rena Moran, uh, back, and uh, when we do so, everyone will be able to see her, uh, who she is, and see us. And um, also the lines will be open for that television broadcast. So um, for call in, we've got to get to the heart of this. And this information is critical. We knew that it would be. That's why it was designated this way. Now, let's move this forward. Um, We want to get to Lydia Yosa. Uh, good girls, nice girls, finish last. And and Lydia, uh, if you don't mind, if you'll just get into the substance of, you know, where we came from with this piece. She somewhat exposed it when she started out, when Representative Moran started out. She poured her heart out so we could hear clearly. But if you'd like to take two points and isolate that piece so that black women, females, can, you know, wrap their minds around this piece because this is about business. This is about our money being in the black and all of that ties in being at the right place at the right time for the vote, being equipped to present a proposal that is going to be of substance and capacity and all the T's and I's crossed, you know, crossed and dotted, et cetera. So let's, let's do that very, very quickly. Lydia Iniosa is executive director of cultural connections in St. Paul. All right. Thank you so much, Apostle Barber. And for our listening audience, if you want to call in, the phone number is 646-595-3620. Again, 646-595-3620. And, yes, so the, the main thing 
that I've picked up on that is like a, um, uh, I don't even know the word, uh, kind of like a spider web because it affects everything else grows out from there, is basically understanding power. Uh, Representative Moran did a wonderful job explaining things having to do with power and uh, I don't care if it's in business, I don't care if it's in our lives, if if we don't understand power then we end up jumping through other people's hoops and figuring out how high they want us to jump and sometimes when even when we do that we still don't get what, what we want. So with uh, power come, for example, uh, understanding power uh, Representative Moran spoke about schools, which leads into graduation rate, and she also, by the way, it, it's not a secret. I mean, I'm not going to say anything that people don't already know. Graduation rates, especially for graduation rates in the state are not spectacular, or in the country, they're not spectacular, but for students of color in particular, they're bad. And for as bad as the written numbers are, um, for those of us who have been in the public schools, we know that they have a way to fudge the, num- the numbers. They'll see a student transferred to another state, a, su- a student simply withdrew. They do not want to write down that a student dropped out unless they absolutely have to. So those numbers that we're seeing, they're generous numbers. Um, graduation rates, open enrollment, uh, open enrollment, uh, what, uh, uh, what Representative Moran had mentioned. With Can we talk about question, whatever question you may have for her to help us, you know, wrap this up? Okay, so the question, question. is, uh, Representative Moran, if you were to tell one group, uh, if you were to give a piece of advice to one group, or, or if, if you were to give advice to folks on how they could better understand power so that they can get power, especially from the bird's eye view that you have, what would you be be telling them to look out for and to Excellent. Representative Moran. Oh, I'm sorry. I had it on mute. (laughs) We understand. (laughs) Thank you. Power is a... um, of the big word, right? It's a big word that's often um, in, especially the black community, that we don't want to take take hold of, or believe that we have it. We have an inherent power that we often underutilize or give away to somebody else. Um, and so, um, I'm sorry. Give me the question again. Lydia, give her the question again. Lydia, give her the question again quickly. I'm I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I muted myself. So the question Uh is, in relation to power, if you were going going to give someone a suggestion or advice about power, what would you be telling them to do as far as how to find out more about it and how to get more of it, how to use it? All right. Yeah. Because a lot of times okay. people don't know it. they 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 know what the word means, but they don't know how it uh, affects their lives or how or how they can affect it. So um, I I give a um, 
an example, um, the power that we have and don't use. You know, especially as black people, we come from a, a history, a history of struggle, a, a history of, of slavery, a, 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 a history of, of policies that create practices that then and today continue trying to keep us in a place. But we know that we have ancestors, right, who gave up their lives and they struggle and even in the depth of slavery and servitude they saw and recognized the value of being free the value of being free the value of of working hard the value of uh, voting the value of changing the narrative that someone else had put on us and I just say in in, in the 21st century today, we have to get back to that very basic thing of knowing the power that we have by participating in a process that is not for us, about us, but creating, continue our legacy of our ancestors, of, of continuing to move it to the place that we want it to be. And we only can do that if we are present in the now, in the moment, of utilizing our voices, voting in a political process, showing up when we need to show up, sharing and telling our own stories. And because now because we are so, you know, spread out, we're not as we used to be stuck in one community together, and maybe stuck is not the, the right word, but being in close proximity with each other, that we have to be, when you learn something, you share something. When you know something, you share something. When you see someone struggling within our community, that we are lifting each other and participating and bringing us together as a collective, because there is power in a collective. And so for those of us who, who don't know it, it is those simple basic practice as it was back in that day of us coming together utilizing i mean you know any any change any revolution any you know um um civil rights movement or any movement that has happened happened because ordinary people stood up it wasn't because politicians said oh i'm going to give those black people their right to vote <laughs> because i'm going to give them no we participated. We showed up present, and then we looked at those policies that created those practices back in there and, and back in our community, and we changed them. We changed the practice. We changed the policies. You know, so I believe in all of it. I believe in protesting. I believe in you know, um, you know, I believe in you know, running for office. I believe in showing up at your, your kid's school, challenging, you know, what a teacher or principal has said to you, you know. And we don't got to be fighters. We don't have to be cursing somebody out to do that. But we, you know, we're, we're looking at what we don't know and how we can get what we don't know into a place with someone who who knows what it is, and we're listening and we're learning from them. We're coming part of that movement. I I, I think that is that is the power. I mean, that's the power we see in white people doing that. 
You know, they never stop. They never. They, they are never taking a break or a rest, and neither can we. We have to stay in the struggle. We have to stay in this fight. We have to be connected and interconnected with others at all times. We have to, you know, become aware of our own simple personal power and use it together collectively with other people around the issues that we care about. Not all of us going to care about every issue, but find the issues that you do care about and find the next person who cares about it too. It was just that simple. It was just, you know, for me in my community, I cared about home ownership at one time because I had become a new homeowner. And I knew the elders in my community was on a fixed income. I knew there was other people who cared about it. And so I found them. I connected with them who cared about that one simple issue that I cared about. And we took it to our elected officials. We took it to them. We didn't wait for them to come to us. We took that to them in City Hall and to the mayor and said, what are you going to do about that? Where do you stand on this? I went to my legislator at the Capitol for the first time and said, what do you think about this? And be known to me, you know, I thought my legislator would know about the issues that I cared about. But he did not know about it and probably didn't care about it neither. So I found myself educating him. And we were finding as black people that we're always going to be educating other people about the things that we care about because we can't make the assumption that they know about it nor do they care about it. So we got to bring the awareness to them. We got to educate them. We got to bring another person into the process with us. Let me jump in here very quickly because I tell you, this is so full. And for those of you, get this podcast after it. But where we are right now, lacking mentorship, lacking the will and the uh, the strength and the fortitude, fortitude, look that word up, the fortitude to mentor. That's what our ancestors did. They passed on the legacy. The scriptures of God are encased in passing on the memorial. That simply is mentorship, no matter how you want to look at it and really uh, stripping ourselves of the inferiority that if I mentor one, they will replace me or they will, you know, uh, take away from me. You know what? If they do, they do. But you have done all that you know to do. And that is critical. Our black politicians being mentored in corporate America. I spent years as a a self owned business entity in uh, going after corporate high profile clients to place black folks in their companies at high levels. And one of the things that I recognized very quickly, state representative and to our listening audience, there is a internal system and uh, our representative really uh, identified it. It doesn't matter where you place it. It is the same if you're really listening and you've got to deal with this. So when you are ready, it's okay to get the mentoring that is necessary and leadership and elders or whatever you want to call it, even if that person is younger than you, but yet they've had the experience in being in various structures that can can give you the insight back to corporate America. What I saw happening was when it was time for uh, the white 
candidate, uh, the white uh, candidate to be promoted, that white candidate had already been mentored by their white counterparts parts in that organization. No longer wear, you know, this color. Uh, make sure that your shoes are this color. Y'all better hear me. I'm telling you it works and it is working, but we must address our own. We don't look a certain way. We don't have to, but we must definitely be ready for the job and ready to get the deal, no matter how we look at it. There are resources, and Dr. Foreman is going to acknowledge a couple of pieces that he's connected with. In terms of that, I am mentoring teenagers as it relates to their entrepreneur capabilities, and not only that, I want them to be talking heads in front of the camera when they're running their corporations, when they're running their businesses, whether they are leaders in power. It does not matter, but they must be secured and mentored. We cannot get away from that, but we have to remove ourselves from our insecurities of sharing information and doing so. Yes, we know that people will steal ideas, run with it, and leave you out at the table. Representative mm-hmm. Moran, you understand what I'm saying. They will yes. do that. So we have this we have this innate fear that we will only go so far with sharing information um, when we know that it can benefit others because we've been misused in some kind of way, et cetera, et cetera. So if you'll speak to businesses, I had to get that soapbox out there right then and there. Uh, but uh, in, in closing here, because we appreciate your time, as it relates to businesses, uh, black owned, run businesses that are in the black or maybe something's happening with this next phase of what they're dealing with and they're not in the black for the funding that they need. What can you say to these businesses that can now begin to look at, you know what, we better have someone listening to what's happening in the legislature so that we'll know if this is in sync. And not only that, we are doing some things that, um, are supporting our community, but we need to be we need strength in the dollar. So can you address that to the business entity? Yeah, I agree, you know. Um um and and, and see this is the thing with the state and, and I, I want us to be able to see the capital and the power that the capital have. Because I the, the district that I represent is so close to the capital we can touch it. I think we can just touch it. Mm-hmm. But sometimes, oftentimes, we don't even see it. You know, we, we see mayors, we see city councils, we see school boards, you know, maybe county. No one quite knows what county do. But, you know, they don't seem to see this capital. And we are, I mean, we are creating laws and policies that you have to live by, that you have to go by. It's going to determine who we are as a state and what we care about, what we value. We are investing billions of dollars into something that is not often and often enough a black-owned, black-led organization that's working. Yeah, black-owned, black-led organization or business. And so we have to get comfortable. We got to become comfortable in an uncomfortable place and taking some ownership of that. Because if, I'm just going to say this one more time, because if we believe that those who 
are there can speak to our needs in a better way than we can or inform or the direction that we need to go, then we are mistaken. I am a true believer that those who are impacted by system bring solutions to the table about it. We don't have to always respond to the inequities. We can set the table for what we want. We can do that. And so for the businesses that are out there and the, the small businesses that are out there, the business in general or the organizations that are out there, one of the things that I said that I did immediately was begin to reach out to these organizations, show up and find out, you know, where, um, where, where they meet, where they're gathering, and, and show out and show up um, for them and introduce them to the process, introduce to what we're doing as a legislative body, how it works, you know, what a session look like, when do we start our conversation. We just got out of session, and you know what? We got some ideas. If you think that, you know, you have something to offer that you are offering, you know, our, our state and our communities and our neighbors and parents or youth or whatever, you know, you're a small business, you're an entrepreneur, you know, or you want more training, or whatever that is that you believe you need, those conversations start now. They start right now. And figuring it out, you know, if you're, if you're in, in, in the Twin Cities or if you're in the suburbs, say somebody represent you, and you need to just give them a phone call. Shoot them an email, and if you are their constituent, nine out of ten, they're going to meet with you. They're going to do that because, actually, you are our boss. We're going to meet with you, and you get the opportunity to share with them one-to-one what it is, what direction you you, you want to go, what, what your business is doing, and that leads up to a possible bill that can be introduced in January, February. But that work starts now when we're not in session because session is moving. And, you know, conversations have been made, plans have been made, you know, some things will happen during session. But a lot of that starts right now while your legislator is back in their community for you to make that connection. Introduce yourself. Talk about the work you're doing. Talk about the impact you're having. Talk about what you need. Talk about the, what you're doing, but you lack funding. And if you only had this much to fill that gap, what a bigger impact that you would have for the work that you're doing. So, you know, in a place where, you know, we don't, you know, when we don't like politics, and I get that from us more than I get that from any other people that we say, oh, nope, I don't do politics. Nope, I don't like politics. Nope, this about the, uh, a politician. Nope, that. Just turn some of those notes and what we don't like into something that's going to work in your, in your behalf because you have the power to do that. You have the power at least to introduce it and bring another worldview into their worldview. You have the power to expand their worldview because often enough there are limits in how they see us and how they value us as a people and as a community. But you have the opportunity to do that. And it starts, it starts now. It starts now while we are back in our communities. Make those connections. Send them a call. Send them an email. You know, call them. Talk to them. Hey, say I'm a constituent of yours. Give them your address and say I would like to meet with you. And it's almost guaranteed they're going to show up because they see you as a vote for one thing. 
and that's what matters to them. It's that vote. And show them that you are not just one person. You are connected to a community of other people. Let them see the number and the power behind you. That's important. And that can be accumulated when we realize the power that we have right in our space, right in our own space, to take take this information that everyone is hearing and look around, whether it is from... Uh, you know, your selected individuals in, uh, in, our, uh, in our congregations, in our neighborhoods, in our neighborhood associations. Think about the influence. It may only be two people that you really need to talk to, but their connection. But if you can give them what you're getting and see that thing swell and, compre- and, and, and begin to see the impact and the power, thank you, Lydia, uh, thank you, uh, Representative Moran. Thank you, Dr. Lois Foreman, Jr. I believe that we've arrived at our destination. We were already here, but we've punched through another wall. <laughs> we have literally knocked down yeah. a wall. Trust me on this. Uh, you know what? This is it. This is the real deal, and this is what we're asking folks to Come to this table. Get this information. It is free. I didn't ask you to pay for it. I didn't ask you to download the uh, the podcast, and you got to pay two dollars for it, even when you can afford it. I'm saying this is a now time, a now time, and a resurgence of power. Shall I say it this way? Hidden power. Yes. Hidden power. Yes. Uh-huh. Hidden power. Because the power is there, but it's yep. hidden when we choose not to share that power. So, uh, wow. Representative, you have the last word here from your platform, and then our commentators will close us out. Uh, Lydia Iniosa and then Dr. Foreman, and thank you all. I am so full. All right, go ahead. So I just want, just want to say thank you. Thank you for being patient with me. To, to get me to the space where I'm at right now, but I'm, I'm a strong believer that, you know, now is the time and now is the moment. I am a person of faith to believe that that, that I don't move all things, but there's, a, that there's, there's my God who I serve that makes things happen beyond myself. Uh, I am a true believer in that, and um, I think you know, as people of faith, you know, we have to lean on something that is beyond ourselves. And be a good listener. Be a good listener in all things. Um, I have learned, and as I continue to learn, how to move myself from a person who, you know, 17 years ago when I came to the state of Minnesota who was homeless, who now find himself in the House of Representatives as a deputy minority leader, you know, the co-chair of our posse caucus, that we have to believe beyond what we can see. Connect to other people, build strong, good relationships, and be a good listener. Listen, because that will inform you how you move forward. And... um, I would just stop there. 
thank you so very much for being with us today. We really appreciate your uh, the information, the insight, the stories, everything. Thank you so much. And also, uh, I think it's very important for us to realize that power is everywhere. There's power structures. We have it in our families. We have it in our communities. And a lot of times, the places where we exercise it the most is where we get the least results. So thank you very much. You're welcome, and thank you. And amen. (laughs) Again, I want to... Amen, that's right. (laughs) Again, Representative Moran, we thank you so much for being here, the insight, the wisdom that you share with us, and uh, the spirit in which you shared it was just, um, just amazing, just met the need. As Apollo said, I'm full. Um, thank you for the insight again that uh, a vote equals a voice. Um, and as we talk about it, it's not just our voice, but we really have to begin to look at um, empowering our voices and multiplying our voices through mentorship and through collaboration. Um, you know, I'm blessed to be a collaborator, uh, facilitator of several different things that we have out there to be able to really help us get to the table. Uh, get our voices heard and get our money in the black. Um, I'm a co-facilitator of the Twin Cities Construction Collaborative, which is a consortium of minority contractors who work in concert together to do projects um, and to build their skill levels and capacity to actually take on higher levels of contracting. Um, Mm. I also uh, am bringing to the Twin Cities along with um, several other uh, people of faith uh, the Joseph Business School, um, it would be Joseph Business School of Minnesota, which is an international faith-based business school, and uh, we'll be launching uh, in the fall, I mean, in the spring of next year. And so we want to have people to be able to plug into that again. We want to make entrepreneurs um, profitable and sustainable so that you're here for the long run and be able to live legacy. And then last but not least, I'll just mention a third thing that we're involved in is the Kingdom Billionaire Conference, um, which is a faith and finance conference that we host each year. Uh, coming up this fall, probably in collaboration with another event, we want to teach you how faith and finance work together. So our mission to raise up a 1,000 millionaires uh, in our community. And, uh, again, the Word of God says, as you think, so you are. So we want to teach you millionaire mentality, millionaire mindset, being their tactics, present you opportunities to participate in the financial arena, um, to build wealth, and to really ultimately go where you want to go. And, um, you know, for those who are listening, if you want to reach out to me for any of those, uh, you can reach me at drloyce at gmail.com, drloyce, and loyce is L-O-Y-A-C-E. So that email address is D-R-L-O-Y-A-C-E at gmail.com. Thank you. Well, let me just state that I I didn't share my contact information, but I at all times, you know, am open to um, people contacting me, sharing with me, you know, um, and it's not always the good things, you know. I'm, I'm open enough to hear, you know, where you think we need to be going, you know, and how I can be a part of that. So, but I can also be reached at rep dot rena dot m 
o r a n at house dot m n. So share with me. Uh, give that. Can you give that one more time, So it's it's r e p dot r e n a dot m o r a n at house dot m n. That's rep dot rena dot moran at house dot m n. Thank you. And her information is listed um, on the description of the broadcast today for those who will be listening after uh, we leave the line live and uh, get the podcast. I'm telling you, share this. Blow it up. Share this information. See yourself as studious as you possibly can because I refuse to believe that there isn't value and insight and wisdom as well as strategies that you've been thinking about and even conceiving and now put it on paper and let's move forward and accomplish what we've been given to do fearlessly fearlessly moving forward and being as articulate as we possibly can, but showing an aspect of our knowledge in our communicating that we need to do so. So having said that, again, we want to thank our guest uh, representative, Rena Moran, and uh, we applaud and thank you for being here. Other, um, rep, uh, others, uh, those in legislation, listen, you can reach out to us also this platform uh, as mm-hmm. well as in the Senate, in the House. Come on. Bring your insight to the table because you work hard at what you do, but as Representative has made it very clear, you work for us. But Mm -hmm. we've got to do better in articulating and communicating with you. So we are going to do that, and we're going to be robust about it, and whatever efforts are needed behind closed doors, it is now time to allow that power to be released and move forward in some areas that are necessary. You can reach uh, Deputy Minority Leader uh, Rena Moran, who is our DFL District 65A. Uh, and listen, this is not one-sided. We have Republicans coming to the table. We have uh, Green Party folks coming to this platform. We have independent parties coming to this platform. But on Mondays, it is, again, being able to move you forward in your business, in your business. And when you really think about what and how you're connected in business, I think this is going to mean something to you. Again, so do so. And you can reach her by contacting her via her email, rep.rena.moran at house.mn. All right, we've got to go now. Enjoy your Monday, the business of Monday Money Talk, (laughs) and with Uh hashtag the Black Money Team. All right, we've got to go now. Thank you. Be blessed.
Yeah, you too. I know it, but that's what that's always been about, even your time. <laughs> that's what happens. It's always a blooper in here somewhere. <laughs> I can't wait to enjoy my grandson, and he wants to get on his bike and get me on mine. <laughs> Having said that, I'm going to leave this blooper right here on the end of this broadcast. It's nothing like loving your family. Thank you all. <laughs> 